0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Today's sermon, as Justin pointed out, is the first in a summer series on biblical anthropology or the doctrine of man. And so, my task today and over the next few weeks is to try to explain and unpack what it means to bear the image of God. And so, today we'll be focusing on the dignity of man. And we'll also touch a little bit upon the identity of man. And next week, we'll explore more fully the identity of man especially as it relates to the concept of unity and diversity. And then following this, I'll do a week on the purpose of man, and then finally the destiny of man, and then Justin will come in and he'll spend four weeks rounding out the series. So that's kind of the big picture view moving forward. And as we move forward in this study, my overall objective is that we would all come to a better understanding and appreciation of what it means for us to be image bearers. To bear the likeness of God. And to this end, over the coming weeks, as we're introducing different aspects of image bearing, ultimately I'm trying to work up to a definition of what it means to bear the image of God, a good working definition of what that means. And so we're going to have to do this in a piecemeal fashion because there's just so much contained within the concept of image bearing. So with those introductory remarks out of the way, let's go ahead and get started. Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 28. In Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, this is the the key text, the primary text that speaks of man being made in the image of the likeness of God. And so we're going to be using this text as kind of our launching pad each week as we look at the different aspects of image bearing. So let's go ahead and read the text. Then God said, let us make man in our image. In these verses, we find a great emphasis being placed upon the dignity of man. Now, that might not jump out at you when you read this text, but it's there, especially when we consider this text uh, in, the broader con- in, the, in the broader scope of all of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, in the entire creation account. Herman Bavink, the great Dutch theologian of the late 1800s and early 1900s, He brings this out in the opening paragraphs of a profound essay that he has titled, The Origin, Essence, and Purpose of Man. Uh, I'm going to be quoting from this essay at least once in every one of my sermons, because it's extremely insightful. So if you don't know who Herman Bavink is, you'll know that name by the end of our time together. But Herman Bavink says this, The account of the origin of heaven and earth converges in the first chapter of Genesis, upon the creation of man. It's as if everything is being funneled to this event. He says that the creation of the other creatures of heaven and earth, of sun and moon and stars, of plants and animals, is succinctly reported. But when scripture comes to the creation of man, it lingers long over him. It describes not only the fact of his creation, but even the manner of his creation And it returns to the subject in the second chapter of Genesis to elaborate upon it further. All of this points us to the dignity of man. That's what Bavink is saying here. There's special attention in the text that's given to the creation of man as compared to the more matter-of-fact description of the rest of creation. And that points us to man's dignity. One of the clues that we see of this in the first chapter of Genesis is there's a pattern that occurs seven times. And that pattern is, and God said, let there be. And God said, let there be. So, for example, in Genesis 1 verse 3, it says, and God said, let there be light. And then again in verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And we see this again in verse 9, in verse 11 in verse 14, in verse 20, in verse 24. But then when we get to verse 26, this pattern is conspicuously altered. Verse 26 reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. This break in the pattern is meant to grab our attention. It's telling us that there's something unique about man. There's something different that's happening here. Moreover, notice the striking use of first-person plural pronouns. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. In Genesis chapter 1, the only time God speaks in this way in the first person occurs right here in the instance of creating man after his image. And so this linguistic change, it signifies a distinction with respect to humans and the rest of creation. There's a hint of intimacy that is present here. God is speaking personally when it comes to the creation of man. He's using personal pronouns. And I think this is meant to foreshadow the peculiarly personal relationship between God and man that would then be elaborated upon more fully in chapter 2, where we read that the Holy Spirit personally breathes life into the nostrils of this earthen vessel of man. And then we read of God communing with man, having fellowship with him, dialoguing with him in the garden. All of this points to man's special place of dignity within the created order. Bavinck goes on to say this, This particular attention devoted to the origin of man, it serves as evidence of the fact that man is the purpose and end, the head and crown of all the work of creation. And there are other details which also illuminate the superior rank and worth of man among the creatures. In the first place, there is the special counsel of God which precedes the creation of man. This clues us into man's dignity. If I can say this reverently, it's as if the Godhead, the Trinity, is huddling up and saying, let's do something special here. Let's make a creature after our own likeness. Bavin continues, At the calling into being of other creatures, we read simply that God spoke and by speaking he brought them into existence. But when God is about to create man, he first confers with himself and rouses himself to make men in his image and likeness. And this goes to indicate that especially the creation of man rests on deliberation. We could even say divine deliberation, divine wisdom, goodness, and omnipotence. Nothing, of course, came into existence by chance but the counsel and decision of God is far more clearly manifest in the making of man than in the creation of other creatures. Moreover, in this particular counsel of God, the special emphasis is placed on the fact that man is created after the image and likeness of God. And therefore, listen to this, man stands in an entirely different relationship to God than all other creatures. Put a pin in that. We're going to explore that more fully next week. Man stands in an entirely different relationship to God than all other creatures. This clues us into man's identity. Bavin concludes, he says, It is said of no other creatures, not even of the angels, that they were created in God's image and that they exhibit his image. Now this last point that Bavin makes is exceedingly important. It's absolutely critical that we begin this series understanding this. That, That we understand that no other creature in God's creation has this identity but man alone. Man alone was made as the image of God. No other creature has been given this dignity, not even the angels. For whatever reason, many people have a misconception about angels. Thinking that they are somehow superior in rank or status to man. Even though angels have certain powers and abilities that we don't have, nevertheless... We are the apex of God's creation. Well, yeah, but didn't we just read from Psalm 8 that man was made a little bit lower than the angels? Yes, but really the way that passage is to be understood is that man has been made a little lower for a little while. And that one day, when the redeemed in Christ are fully conformed to his image, when the people of God are glorified and brought into the fullness of what God intended humanity to be, then we shall judge the angels as we are told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. Hebrews 2, 5-9, which was our text this morning for communion, it proves this to be the case with regard to Psalm 8. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8, and he applies it to Christ, as Justin pointed out. He says that Christ was for a little while made lower than the angels, but is now crowned with glory and honor, and all things. all things have been made subject to him. And for those of us who are joined to Christ, we shall rule and reign with him. As it says in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we also will reign with him. Or as Christ himself points out in Revelation 3.21, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. All that to say, no other creature has been given the dignity that man has been given as the image bearer of God. As the author of Hebrews goes on to point out just a few verses later in chapter 2, Christ did not take on the form of an angel to save fallen angels. He took on flesh and blood to save fallen men. Why? To restore the dignity of man who alone is made in the image of God. Therefore, upon the authority of Scripture, we can say that man, as the image of God, is superior, that is to say, has the highest rank or status, compared to all other creatures in the universe, including the angels. Now this should have ramifications in your thinking. It should maybe change the way you think about yourself. It should change how you think about others, despite their ethnicity, or their age, or their sex, or their mental or physical abilities. Perhaps it might even serve as a corrective to the idea of there being higher forms of extraterrestrial life in the universe. The highest form of life in all the universe is man, because man alone bears the image of God. Even if we were to discover alien life on some other planet, it doesn't change the fact that man, that Christ came as a man to save men. And why did he do this? Again, because man is the pinnacle. Man is the the Mount Everest of the created order. The highest form of life in all the universe is man, because man alone bears the image of God. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is primarily focused upon the relationship between God and men. It begins with the creation of man. And then it talks about the fall of man. And then it spends the rest of the time talking about the redemption of man through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so having firmly established, hopefully, the dignity of man that is conveyed in the language of Genesis chapter 1, let's look a little bit more closely now at the words likeness and image. Likeness and image. To begin with, these two words are virtually synonymous and are used interchangeably. For instance, if you notice in Genesis 1.26, it mentions the image of God and then the likeness of God. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So first image, and then likeness. But then we go on to Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. And the word order there is reversed. So in Genesis 5, 3, it's referring to Adam. And it says that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. So there the word order is reversed. So that tells us that these two words are synonymous for the most part. They're interchangeable. However, if any distinction is to be made between these two words, it would be this. Both words... Image and likeness, both of these words, refer to something that is similar or that resembles something else, but the word image is also sometimes used to bring out the idea of representation. Representation. The Hebrew word for image is tezelim, and the root of this word is tezel, which is the Hebrew word for shadow. Thus, we can infer from this word that man was made to represent God, to be God's shadow, if you will. Now, our shadow is a representation of us, albeit an imperfect one. We obviously don't look exactly like our shadow, though not entirely. But more importantly, our shadow is an exact representation of how we behave. If I jump, my shadow jumps. If I wave, my shadow waves. Whatever we do, our shadow does as well. And I think that is how we are to understand this word image with regard to the origin of man. Man was made to behave like God, to reflect the character of God, to think and act like God, to perfectly represent God upon the earth. To put it another way, we could say that man was created in such a way that he alone is able to cast a heavenly shadow the shadow of God upon the earth. Again, all of this points us to the dignity and the identity of man. Throughout all creation, the creature of man was uniquely made to represent the creator. By way of illustration, the current Secretary of State is Antony Blinken. And as our Secretary of State, he is someone who represents the president and our country wherever he goes. He's an ambassador. He speaks for the president, and therefore he has to know the mind of the president so that he can accurately portray the president's agenda. He's not out there on his own doing his own thing, saying whatever he wants or acting however he wants. He's representing our nation. And if Antony Blinken was to go to a foreign country and speak to a foreign dignitary angrily or rudely, that foreign dignitary would not only see Antony Blinken doing that, he would take it as an offense from our president and even our nation. As Secretary of State, Blinken represents the president, but he's not identical to the president. If you were to put Antony Blinken and the president next to each other, I mean, there's similarities, but they're not identical. And yet, even though he's identical, he's able to represent the president. If we think back many years to when our Secretary of State was Condoleezza Rice, during the the presidency of George W. Bush, you can see how dissimilar in appearance the Secretary of State can be in comparison to the president. Condoleezza Rice, first of all, is a woman, so she looks nothing like George W. Bush, who's a man, but she's also a black woman. So, I mean, very dissimilar in appearance. But yet, as our Secretary of State, she was able to represent our president. And in an analogous way, that's how it is with us. We don't look like God. How can anyone look like God? God doesn't have a body like men. But we were made in such a way that we can represent him. We were made to do that. And so the word image, when it's used in the Old Testament, almost always refers to something that resembles something else, but it also takes on the connotation of something that represents something else. Both of these ideas, resembling and representing, can be conveyed by this word image. However, with the word likeness, that's not the case that word strictly conveys the idea of similarity or resemblance. So putting this all together, we can say that man not only resembles God, but he also represents God upon the earth. We could say that man is God's secretary of earth, so to speak. And these two ideas, resembling God and representing God, they come into play when we look at the nature of our lives now as Christians. Our lives now as Christians are nothing less than seeing that image of God being restored and being renewed. The more we are sanctified and conformed to Christ, the more we are accurately resembling and representing God in our lives. Now think about that for a moment. Our sanctification, our being conformed to Christ, is directly proportional To our accurately resembling and representing God. And this gives us an indication of what lies at the heart of being made in the image of God. What is occurring through the process of sanctification? What is taking place when we're being conformed to Christ? We're growing in righteousness. That's what's happening. And the righteousness I'm talking about here is not imputed righteousness. That's a a one-time legal act that occurs at the moment of our salvation. What I'm talking about is the righteousness that we then grow in from that point on. As we walk cooperatively with the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit. And so as we grow in righteousness, we more accurately resemble and represent God. Therefore, righteousness lies at the heart of of what it means to be made in the image of God. That lies at the very heart of it. It's central. Indeed, in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29, we're told that God made man upright. He made man upright. Adam was not created morally neutral. He was created positively righteous. The moral law of God was written upon man's heart from the very beginning. Thus, the primary way that man was made to resemble and represent God was righteousness. Man's purpose was to reflect God's holy character first and foremost. Some people mistakenly believe that Adam didn't have any knowledge of good and evil prior to partaking of the forbidden fruit. That it was only after Adam partook of the fruit that he then came to understand the difference between uh, good and evil. And that prior to that he was morally neutral. But this was not the case. Adam was specifically created to represent God upon the earth, and certainly God is not morally neutral. Moreover, God was given—sorry, uh, Adam was given by God a moral command: "Do not eat of this tree." And there was a penalty attached to it: if you do, you will die. Thus, Adam was a moral creature. He perfectly understood the moral imperative that he had been given. He understood the concept of justice. He understood the necessity of there being punishment for disobedience or for sin. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a symbol. It was a symbol of authority. It was the tree that would demonstrate whether or not man would be content to obey and live by the word of God. Would Adam live in submission to the will and word of God? Or would Adam, in a symbolic act of defiance... Stretch out his hand against God and partake of the fruit, thereby declaring his desire for autonomy or self-rule. Is God the one who determines the knowledge of good and evil or man? That was what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was really all about. When Adam partook of the forbidden fruit, it was a symbolic gesture. In that act, Adam was essentially saying, I can determine for myself the knowledge of good and evil. I can do whatever is right in my own eyes. I don't want to be your representative. I want to represent myself and my own self-interests. I want to be the one to define my own identity, not have it dictated to me by you. But this then raises the question, so what happened to the image of God once Adam plunged mankind into sin? If, as we already said, righteousness is at the heart of what it means to be made in the image of God, what has happened now that man has fallen? If man is to be considered the image of God, even though sin, is he still to be considered the image of God, even though sin has corrupted every part of man's being? If every aspect of the heart of man has been contaminated and polluted by sin, can man still be regarded as the image of God? And there are two verses that answer this question for us. And the answer is a resounding yes. Man is still to be considered a creature of the highest dignity, despite the fact that he has fallen. The first verse that we need to consider is Genesis 9, verse 6. Here in Genesis 9, we are post-fall. The fall has already taken place, as recorded in chapter 3 of Genesis. In fact, God has just destroyed millions of people through a worldwide flood precisely because of the wickedness of man. Because every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. That's the context of Genesis chapter 9. And here we find God enunciating something very clearly to Noah, and it has to do with the dignity of man. It has to do with man still being made in the image of God. This new society that will begin to repopulate the earth, mankind 2.0, after the flood, is to remember first and foremost the creation principle that man has been made in the image of God. Notice what God says in verse 6 of Genesis 9. Whoever sheds the blood of man, so murder, and I think we should think of it as first-degree murder here. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, capital punishment. For, here's the reason, God, was, uh, God made man in his image. That's the reason given. So God is reinforcing the dignity of man. A murderer is to be executed. And again, I think what he has in mind here is first degree murder. Why? Because man is the image of God. Thus, even in his post-fallen stage, man is still an image bearer. And as such, he is to be regarded with the utmost dignity. And not to get too far off course here with the idea of capital punishment, but we ought to realize that when we fail to observe capital punishment for first-degree murder, and again, what we're talking about here is that willful, premeditated, intentional killing, when we fail to observe capital punishment in those instances, we're actually degrading man. We're actually bringing his dignity to a very low level. You know, one of the purposes of the law is to be our teacher, to instruct us. When it comes to God's law, the severity of a penalty that is attached to a precept indicates the value of that precept. So just by way of illustration, imagine if in our own society, the penalty for committing rape or pedophilia was just a $50 fine. What would that teach us? It would teach us that protecting uh, women and children from sexual assault, well, that's not really a big deal. It's just a $50 fine. The severity of the penalty indicates the value placed upon the precept. And here in Genesis 9-6, we see the the, the severest penalty, capital punishment, being attached to first-degree murder. Which teaches us what? It teaches us how much God values the dignity of man. That's what it teaches us. In the eyes of God, the only thing that will satisfy his justice for the willful, intentional, premeditated taking of a human life, the life of an image bearer, the life of a creature that has the utmost dignity, the life of a creature whose status and rank, remember, exceeds even that of the angels, the only thing that will satisfy God's justice in this instance is to take the life of the murderer. If you cheapen the penalty, you cheapen human life. That's God's law for man. Nevertheless, we find here in Genesis 9, God reinforcing the sanctity of human life, even though man is now in a fallen state. Now, the other verse that speaks to this is in the New Testament. It's in James chapter 3. And here we again see that man is still to be regarded as an image bearer, even though he's fallen. In James chapter 3, he's talking about the tongue as being this restless evil And full of deadly poison. And James says this with it, our tongue, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So again, we see that man, even in his fallen state, is to be shown honor and dignity because he's still an image bearer. To give another illustration, it would be like someone saying, You know, I love America, I love this country. And as they're saying, they're they're lighting the flag on fire. Such a person fails to understand that the flag represents America. It's a visual image of what America stands for. Thus, to bless America and then turn right around and curse it by burning the flag is self-defeating. It's hypocrisy. What James would have us understand is that when we bless God and then we turn around and are cruel and hateful to those who bear his image... God takes that personally. God takes it personally when a human being is murdered or treated cruelly or unjustly because man is made in his likeness and is still his representative on this earth. It's easy to lose sight of the dignity of man in a society that has fully imbibed, fully drank in an evolutionary anthropology. It's easy to belittle man's worth when we're taught to believe that man is merely the ancestor of an ape. That he's just a highly evolved animal. What happens to the sanctity of human life when man is no longer regarded as being made in the image of God? That there's nothing inherently special about man? What happens when we reject the notion that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights by virtue of the fact that they've been made in the image of God? Well, we need only look back to our last century to see what happens to common decency when a biblical anthropology is substituted for an evolutionary one. The 20th century was by far the bloodiest century ever recorded in the history of man. And a significant contributor to this was the widespread widespread acceptance of an evolutionary anthropology within the Western world. If man is told that he's nothing but a beast. We should not be surprised when he lives like one. Nevertheless, no matter how much fallen man embraces an evolutionary anthropology, it will never change the fact that man has been made in the image of God. Being made in the image of God is man's identity. Sin did not cause man to lose his identity. It caused an identity crisis. When sin, uh, while sin has significantly ruined the image of God in man, it has not revoked the image. Sin has defaced the image, but it has not erased the image. If you've ever had the opportunity to go and visit the site of an ancient city such as Rome and Athens, you can still appreciate the vestiges of the city's former glory, even though such cities largely lay in ruins. There are still traces of the beauty and splendor that these ancient cities once possessed. And that's how it is with man. Fallen man still bears the vestiges of his former glory. Even though fallen man largely lies in ruin because of sin, there are still traces of the beauty and splendor that he once possessed in his pristine state. Man has not completely lost his identity, but his identity has been so distorted and marred by sin that his former glory can be difficult to recognize. What needs to happen then for man to return to that former glory, to get back to where he needs to be, fulfilling his purpose in life by accurately resembling and representing God upon the earth? Answer, regeneration. He needs to be born again. He needs to be recreated in the likeness of Christ. This is what regeneration is all about. It is God restoring his own likeness in us by conforming us to the perfect image of his son. In Christ we see the epitome of what it means to accurately reflect the image of God. And we're told in scripture that the spirit is conforming us to his image. And that ultimately we will be like him in glory. And then we will see humanity as God originally intended it. The final lines in Charles Wesley's famous hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I don't know if you've ever caught this, but the final lines say this Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thine image in its place. Final Adam from above, second Adam from above, so Christ, reinstate us in your love. That is what God is doing in our lives as Christians. He's salvaging our souls. He has taken our souls out of the wrecking yard of sin and is now in the process of restoring our souls back to their classic vintage state, back to mint condition. He's taking all of the dents out. He's putting all of our parts back in proper working order and he will one day paint our bodies in the colors of glory so that we will all shine like the stars in the heavens. And this spiritual restoration process is not speculation, by the way. We're told in Colossians 3.10 that we have put on the new man. We've put on the new man. We're not what we used to be. We've been changed and we're being renewed in knowledge. We're continuing to change. We're being renewed in knowledge, it says, after the image of our creator. See, we're being restored back to that image. We find a similar passage in Ephesians 4.24. There Paul tells us to work cooperatively with the Spirit so as to put on the new self. Again, it says, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Thus, from these two verses, we see that we were originally made to reflect God in our knowledge and in true righteousness and holiness. And now as Christians... We are, and now in that restoration process, we're in that salvaging process, working cooperatively with the spirits, so that we might accurately again resemble and represent God in our lives more and more. We're being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians three eighteen. And in this way, our dignity is raised. And our identity is recovered. Now in the time that remains, I have four points of observation application based on what we've discussed. And the first one is this. Appreciate and uphold the dignity of man. Appreciate and uphold the dignity of man. Though sin has distorted the image of man, We're still to treat all men with dignity and respect by virtue of the fact that they're still image bearers. As was said earlier, to sin against man is to sin against the one whose image man resembles and represents. Now, I know that this observation may seem rather obvious. Yeah, of course we're supposed to appreciate and uphold the dignity of man, no duh. But let me tell you, as I've been putting these notes together, thinking about this for a couple months now, I repeatedly come back to this point and I am convicted, over and over again. I do not, I I do not treat others the way that I should. I'm so quick to have contempt to those around me, sometimes just because of the way they look. The way they're talking, the way they're behaving, the way they're driving. And it's wrong. And I've been trying to reprogram my thinking to, to repent, to change my mind. I, I'm trying to see people now, first and foremost, that, that's an image bearer, Brack. That's an image bearer. That's what I should see. And as such, they deserve the same dignity and honor and respect, same as you. We must all strive to fully appreciate and uphold the dignity of man. Second point of observation application. See the exceeding sinfulness of murder, cruelty, ethnic bigotry, and slander. See the exceeding sinfulness of murder, cruelty, ethnic bigotry, and slander. The following is a quote from Wayne Rudham from his Systematic Theology. He says, We must remember that even fallen, sinful man has the status of being made in God's image. Every single human being. No matter how much the image of God is marred by sin, or illness, or weakness, or age, or any other disability, still has the status of being made in God's image, and therefore must be treated with the dignity and respect that is due to God's image-bearer. He says this has profound implications for our conduct toward others. It means that people of every ethnicity deserve equal dignity and rights. It means that elderly people, those seriously ill, those who are mentally and or physically handicapped and children yet unborn, they all deserve full protection and honor as human beings. If we ever deny our unique status in creation as God's only image bearers, we will soon begin to depreciate the value of human life. We will tend to see humans as merely a higher form of animal and we will begin to treat others as such we will also lose much of our sense of meaning in life. The inconsistency of the world is astounding, is it not? On the one hand, the world tells us that we're just an evolutionary accident. The product of chance, random, unguided chemical reactions. While on the other hand, they talk about certain inalienable rights that we have as human beings. In other words, as a human being, you ain't nothing special. But at the very same time, as a human being, you're uniquely special and you deserve all these rights. Well, which one is it? You can't have it both ways. Evolutionary anthropology does anything but protect the dignity and sanctity of human life. Evolution promotes bigotry and ethnic tribalism because it teaches that there are different races of man rather than one human race that has been made by God to bear His image. It was evolutionary naturalism that fueled Hitler to try and exterminate the so-called inferior race of the Jews, so as to make way for the so-called superior Aryan race. Guys, only a biblical anthropology, only a biblical anthropology, where man is made in the likeness of God, can secure us with human rights that promote the dignity and sanctity of human life. And can provide us with a moral basis for condemning murder, cruelty, ethnic bigotry, slander, etc. Observation application number three. See the exceeding sinfulness of abortion. See the exceeding sinfulness of abortion. As we observed already from Genesis chapter 9, immediately following the flood, God told man... To be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. And then he goes on to say that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And with abortion, we see both of these imperatives being violated simultaneously. Instead of being fruitful and multiplying, innocent blood is shed in the womb without any legal consequences. And notice the context in which God is speaking. God has just judged all of mankind and he's only left Noah and his family to remain as his representatives upon the earth. He reaffirms that man has been made in his image and that man as his image is to, again, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. It's in this context, God covenanting with mankind anew, God covenanting with man a second time, that he proclaims to man that capital punishment is to be the penalty for first-degree murder. This is not a suggestion. God is not telling Noah and his family, the remaining image bearers upon the earth, that as they're fruitful and multiply and as new civilizations and societies develop, that you know eventually you guys can just disregard this universal moral edict. No, God is making a sweeping statement here. Going forward, all of mankind is to observe capital punishment in the case of first-degree murder, regardless of the time or society in which we live. Because this, this is what protects the dignity of man. There are to be no exceptions. Thus, the only just penalty for willfully and intentionally shedding man's blood, whether in the womb or at any point beyond the womb, is capital punishment. Consequently, the legal system of any nation is to provide full protection to pre-born human beings because they too bear the image of God. The Dobbs decision has given power back to the states when it comes to abortion law, and we ought to relentlessly advocate for equal protection under the law for pre-born human beings in every state. With regard to our own state, since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June of last year, Texas law has prohibited the performance of an abortion on a woman. Praise God for that. However, the current law does not prohibit a woman from performing an abortion on herself through abortion-inducing drugs. Nor does it prohibit others from pressuring or otherwise coercing a woman into performing an abortion on herself with these drugs. But, in late February of this year, State Representative Brian Slayton, from nearby Roy City, actually, filed HB 2709, a bill that would seek to outlaw abortion-inducing drugs being shipped across state lines into Texas. And by banning the delivery of these drugs across state lines, this bill was hoping to close the loopholes and, and further us into completing that abolishing abortion in Texas by providing equal protection of the law. And at the time of the filing of this bill, in a news release, Representative Slayton, he said this about his bill. My legislation will ensure that the life of every person, including innocent babies in the womb, will be equally protected by law and women cannot be preyed upon and pressured into an abortion. Now, now brethren, I don't know where this bill sits now in the process of things. I'm only using it as an example It's just an example of the type of legislation that is good and commendable. It's moving us in the right direction. Equal protection under the law for pre-born human life should be our goal. Not only for Texas, but for every state in the nation. As was pointed out earlier, one of the, the purposes of the law, remember, is to be our teacher. It's to instruct us. Thus, our aim should be to put laws in place that would serve to instruct all men and women that life in the womb is sacred, so that women could no longer be lied to, or pressured, or coerced into shedding innocent blood. Our hope and desire should be that our nation's laws would reflect God's law, that our nation's laws would teach all men and women the dignity of preborn human life. Our ultimate goal should be to put legislation in place that would fully protect life in the womb, that the dignity of human life in the womb would be made abundantly clear to all men and women. And that anyone who would willfully and intentionally perform an abortion would be subject to prosecution, up to and including even maximum sentence of capital punishment. This should be the goal. Well, We're not there yet. There would be... A lot of work that would have to be done to get to that point. But this should be the goal if we would have our nation's laws reflect God's law in upholding the dignity of man. Now, I know that for some here, the subject of abortion can open up old wounds. And all I can say to you is that if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, all your sins have been forgiven. As we sometimes sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Or again, as we sometimes sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. It is well with my soul. Or to quote from Psalm 103, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. If you are in Christ... Your sins have been forgiven, not in part, but the whole. However, if you are not in Christ, if you are not a Christian, I leave you with this final observation application. See the exceeding sinfulness of all sin. See the exceeding sinfulness of all sin. All sin is a misrepresentation of God and slanders his good name. If we've been made for the purpose of accurately representing God, especially the righteousness of God, his moral character, then whenever we sin, we are misrepresenting God and we're slandering him. Just like if our Secretary of State went to another country and began to speak and act in ways that would completely misrepresent our president and that would bring shame upon the reputation of our country. If the Secretary of State did this, he or she would cause incredible damage and would be brought on on charges. They would be a criminal in the eyes of the state. And in a profoundly greater way, that is what all human sin is. Having been made in the image of God, man's sin is always a misrepresentation of God. Our representation of God is either accurate or slanderous. It's never morally neutral. And this being the case, God can never be indifferent to wicked behavior. He is committed to clear his good name, and he shall avenge himself upon those who insist on misrepresenting him. Indeed, think of this. Hell. Hell exists to clear his good name. Hell exists to clear his good name you see then why it is so important that we understand our purpose in life. To understand why we've been created. If we don't understand that we were created to accurately reflect the image of God, then we will not truly understand what sin is. To quote from Wayne Grudem once more. It's a great quote. Sin is directly opposite to all that is good in the character of God. And just as God necessarily and eternally delights in himself and all that he is, so God necessarily and eternally hates sin. Sin is, in essence, the contradiction of the excellence of his moral character. It contradicts his holiness, and he must hate it. Many people think to themselves, why is God so angry with me? I don't hate God. I'm not really interested in him, but I don't hate him. They don't understand their job description. They don't understand that they were created to be his royal representative in everything they say and do. And that they've been misrepresenting him from the moment they were born. If you're not a Christian, you need to see the exceeding sinfulness of your sin. You need to understand that with every sin, you slander and misrepresent God as his image bearer, and you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of judgment. Repent and believe in Christ, the perfect image bearer of God. Be conformed to him. Have your soul salvaged from the wrecking yard of sin before it's too late. Before the arm, the crane of God's justice takes your soul and casts it into the fires of hell to be eternally crushed under the weight of God's holy wrath forever and ever and ever. Only Christ can salvage your soul. Only Christ can restore your dignity and solve your identity crisis. Come to Him. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing that You would bestow such dignity and honor upon man. We can easily pray with David, who is man that You are mindful of him. And yet, You did create us to bear Your image, to resemble You and represent You upon this earth. And even though we've fallen... Still, because of your love for us, you sent your Son to become one of us, to take on flesh and blood, and to save some of us. Lord, we praise you for that. And Lord, if there are any here who are still outside of Christ, who are still in the wrecking yard of sin, Lord, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, that he would effectually call them out of the wrecking yard of sin with his jaws of life, I pray this in Jesus' name.